The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for the truths that we just sang, particularly as we think about grace and how you, by grace and grace alone, are working so many different things into our lives. You have made us your people, you sustain us as your people, and you will carry us all the way home safely as your people, by grace and grace alone. And for that, we say thank you. You were good. And then we move beyond that and dare to ask you for still more that you would, in grace right now, open up this passage that's before us, that you would open and teach and build us, and particularly that you would shape us as a people more increasingly humble, increasingly meek before you and one another. We need your grace for that, too. And so please, Lord, both grace for the passage to be clear and grace for the work of the passage to be done in our lives, to be realized. So do more by grace this morning, Lord, and build up your people. Do us good in this way and bring honor to your name. We say thank you for this and look forward to your work in hope because you are a God of grace. So thank you, Lord, we trust you. Amen. Our usual habit on Sunday mornings is to preach through a book of the Bible, just taking the passages as they come, just taking what's next, so that as we move through a book, we eventually hear all that God has said to us in the the right and proper context. However, with so many people gone this morning because of the women's retreat, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to preach a topical sermon this morning, leaving 2 Timothy off to the side. We'll come back to that later. But a topical sermon is a sermon that starts with a topic or with some sort of of an idea or a theory of some sort, and then establishes and elaborates on, explains that theory from a, a passage or maybe a collection of verses from different places, but the, the point, rather than just the text in order, the point is the topic. And so my topic for this morning is humility and where it comes from. Something that I've been thinking about recently as I've kind of been getting worn out by pride. I'm not sure if you've ever been worn out by pride, but What that feels like is a constant thinking about yourself and defending of yourself and your own self's life and your own self's goals and worrying about self. It can just be exhausting in yourself or when you bump into it in other people who are themselves consumed with self. It can wear you out. Maybe we just call it self-concern and focus because pride might sound a little bit too much like kind of arrogance, like confrontation, but maybe you're just quiet and self-focused and self-concerned, and it's exhausting. So I've been thinking about that recently, pride and humility. And then I came upon a small book by an old pastor named Andrew Murray, and on the topic of humility, and it's been refreshing. So I thought, let's explore that this morning. Maybe it'll be helpful for you too, and perhaps for our church as a whole, because 
if one thing is, is true of people, we are by nature self-focused and proud, and it's always helpful for us individually and for our families and for a church family to think about humility and how that grows in us and then can bind us together. It, it creates an atmosphere that is, is one of sweet unity. So this morning, that's where we're going, the topic of humility and especially where it comes from. And we're going to look at this from Ephesians chapter 4. This chapter, Ephesians 4, sits right at the hinge of the book of Ephesians. Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, and in the first three chapters, there are no commands to the church. It is just a listing out of what God has done. It's, it's the telling of the gospel. The gospel, which is, which is not a, a, a recipe or an assignment for us to do something, but it's, it's good news. It's news about what God has done. So you look back at the first three chapters, and what you see is this is what God has done by grace to save his people. And then at chapter 4, there's a turn, and what follows after that are a whole bunch of commands. The last half of the book is full of commands to the church, to God's people. Given that God has now saved us by grace, how then should we live that out? It's the last half of the book is about. How should we live out this salvation? The second half of that book begins with what we're going to look at today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And I'm going to read all six of these verses and really be more focused on three verses. And really, as I said, I'm not actually exploring these verses for the sake of their whole context and the main point that Paul's making. I'm coming at them looking at this topic of humility. And where does it come from? Which by the end, we will see is in this passage. So, that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to make three points from this section, but let me read it first. This is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4. Three observations. Here's the first. Importantly, the Christian life is indeed one of humility and patience. So I'm kind of trying to establish that at the beginning here. Importantly, the Christian life is indeed one of humility and patience. So verse 1, Paul the writer begins with himself, I, a prisoner of the Lord. Now if we were to lump, go way back to the very beginning, the first verse of the whole book, he makes clear as usual that he also is an apostle. That he is an eyewitness of Jesus and of his life and teaching and, and an authoritative representative, a spokesman sent out by Jesus. So he has this authority of office and now he, he reminds us, and I'm in prison for the Lord. So he has this life where he's kind of walked out that walk and suffered for it. And with the authority of his office and the authority of his life, he then calls, urges the church to something. 
In the original language, urge is first. It's front-loaded for emphasis. There's an an urging, an, an exhortation, a calling here. This is not just Paul's idea. This is a command from God with authority behind it. This is what the Christian life looks like. This is not just his idea. This is God's idea. The Christian life or the Christian walk must be like this. I call you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel. Which carefully does not mean a walk that deserves something. That is worthy in the sense of is owed something. Another way we could translate, would, translate that would be to say it's a, a walk that is suitable. A walk that matches or is, is fitting. It's, it's worthy of being associated with the name Christian. So what would that be? What is this worthy sort of, suitable sort of walk that Paul is commanding us, urging authoritatively? In a way, the next three chapters are the answer to that question. All of it. And we can't pick and choose. I like some things here in chapter four, and I don't like some of the stuff in five, but six is great. We, you know, no, it's the walking, the life that Paul says this is what a Christian life looks like. It's three chapters long, all of it. So I, I want to point that out and do justice to that, but also say we're only going to talk about a little piece of that, one slice. Interestingly, this is what comes up first. The first thing he mentions, a chain of statements our, our six verses here are a chain of statements. They build one on another to make this first point, which is really interesting. The Christian walk first must start with, first link in the chain, all humility and gentleness. That's his first, first statement. Live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse two there has two halves. One, the, the first half, these words go together, humility and gentleness, they're a little more internally looking. And then with patience, bearing with one another in love, a little more externally focused. Did I take the first pair first? All humility and all gentleness. Fitting and appropriate Christian life is profoundly humble. All humility. All meekness. The Christian life is very much low. These two words are speaking to us about an attitude of the heart within us about how, how you, how I, how we view oneself on the inside and what we think about ourselves and our own place in the world and what we, I might underline and say, what we really should think. Because I, I realize, I say that I'm talking to a church, I'm not going to get much pushback from a church about, no, Steve, I think that really the Christian life is one of pride. 
That's what we should be about. We should be proud. We should stand on our own rights. You agree with me on this. So I'm trying to push something here and say, really? I know we agree. Really? All humility, all meekness, gentleness. To be humble and gentle in spirit in all situations and at all times, that's what we really are supposed to be. And that does not come natural to us. Our natural disposition is the opposite. It is one of pride. We're born thinking highly of ourselves. We don't need to be taught to look first at me. That comes natural to all of us. We, we, we take kids and when we raise kids, we have to constantly tell them, think about others, share with others, think about how that affects others because we are, we are born and very naturally gravitate towards self. And this can be exhausting and ugly, right? Think of how much, this is what I've been kind of working through recently, just think how much energy you expend defending and struggling and worrying about you and yours. You and your people, you and your position, you and your status, you and your security, you and your prosperity. It's exhausting and difficult. And then it creates conflict because we bump into other people who are doing the same, worrying about them and theirs. And sometimes there are conflicting needs or conflicting desires and wants there. And this, this is where we live. And it, it's not always a blatant arrogance. Sometimes it's, it's very much behind a, a, a quiet demeanor and a smile. But inside there's an engine running that says, I'm watching out for how this affects, how it might impact how it might curtail me and mine. We're called to have an attitude of profound humility and gentleness in spirit, which is probably best defined. I mean, we kind of know what those words mean, but it's best defined in a life. If you look at Jesus, who humbly and meekly did not think it right for himself to be worshipped as the God that he is. He is God. He is somebody. He has, he has the right to be highly thought of, he, to be worshipped, in fact. He's the second person of the triune God, but he didn't count that right as something to be grasped. He, he, he kind of laid that aside and said, I'm going to set down my right, not the fact that I am God, but the right to be regarded as God, and instead stepped humbly and meekly into the role of a servant to do good to others. There, there's humility and weakness there, personified in Jesus. This is... This is the, the living display, the living definition of these words, what, what we are called to be like, and we who bear his name should be just as humble and just as meek as he is, not standing on our own rights and not looking to defend ourselves or to secure ourselves or to advance ourselves, but in fact to give away ourselves for the sake of others. Humble and meek. 
Can you imagine? The, are, are you in touch with the release of that? To be able to let go of, I, I'm preaching this sermon probably half to me at least. That's kind of the nature of starting with a topical sermon is that I came up with an idea. I'm preaching half to me. But can you imagine, I, I mean, I've been trying to get in touch with a little bit of, of the, the freedom here of, of being able to say, I'm not going to fight for me. That takes a whole bunch off my plate. Can you think about that? Can you get in touch with that? Do you not have to contend for you? There's release there. There's, there's a sweetness in the life of humility, the life of meekness, which bleeds right over into the second pair verse, in verse 2, with patience bearing with one another in love. You see, the chain builds on itself here. We start out with first just this internal attitude of I'm not going to stand on my own rights. That's all me regarding me. But then it's going to come out because how I regard me is then going to bump into other people who are going to somewhere or another cross me. And the second pair that he puts here is patience, bearing with one another in love. How do you respond when people cross you Turn the other cheek, is what Jesus taught. To give them your cloak when they ask for your tunic. Give them your cloak also. To go the extra mile when they tell you to go one, go two. To be patient, to see in other people, not just, not just confrontation that threatens me, but to see in the other people. There, there's weakness there, there's need there, there's, yeah, there's sin there, but I'm going to patiently bear with that in love. Not just through gritted teeth. Not just because I don't want to get caught being mean, but I, but I bear with it in love because I want to do good to this other person. I see in them some weakness, some failure, some need, some sin, and I long for good to be done to them. I love them. And so I'm going to bear with, be patient, and in some way seek to help, to bless. Which, to be clear sometimes means that some things should be confronted and brought out. It's important to kind of put that off to the side here. Because if I, if I love and I want to do good to somebody, sometimes allowing injustice and, and evil to continue is not actually good and loving. Sometimes something should be reported to an authority. Sometimes something should be questioned or challenged or brought up. There's lots of difficulties in deciding. When do I let love cover over a multitude of sins patiently in love? And when do I actually confront the sin? That, that's difficult to know. But we'll do better at deciding that if our heart is humble and meek and not set on vengeance and getting mine. how the chains build here, that the links build in this chain. I've got a first set in, in humility and meekness and then in patience and in love deal with people deciding when do I say something and when do I let it go? A heart attitude that wants to let love cover over sin, a heart attitude that wants to forgive 70 times seven. That's what he calls us here to. Humility and meekness patience, bearing with one another in love. Is that natural? Of course not. 
We're going to talk about where it comes from. That's, that's why we're here. We're going to talk about where that comes from. But do you see that as desirable? I don't mean do you see that as appropriate. I know you do. And it's in the verse. Do you want it? Do you want it in your family? Do you want it in, in your relationships with, pick someone, and maybe if, if you're a married person, pick your spouse. If you're a parent, pick your children. If you're a kid, pick your parents. Do you want that kind of relationship where I humbly and meekly and patient with you, forbearing your weakness and sin, while you also humbly and patiently with me, forbearing my sin. Do you want that relationship? Is that desirable? It is required of us, and it is sweetly offered to us. We'll talk about how that comes here. It is completely completely masculine. It's also feminine, but it's also completely masculine. Paul and Jesus were men, and they were men's men. And they walked this life. You can have a booming voice and lumberjack hands and be meek and humble. I'm not, I'm not saying, this isn't calling us, maybe we've We've got some kind of conception in our mind of, I think of a humble and a meek person and I see somebody who's, who's, who's frankly not a very attractive person, kind of uh, wimpy and equivocating. No. This is masculine. And it's sweet. Do you see it and do you want it? I think we should want, we should, we should kind of see, here's what a family, here's what a marriage, here's what a church would be, oh, would be just marvelous if it was like this. And actually, that's where Paul goes with it. Here's the second point. Humble patience is not just commanded of us in, in verse 2 and, and called for, but it's, it's got a purpose. It's for something, the next link in the chain. Humble patience is for the sake of the experienced unity of the church. Starts in verse 3 and goes on. Humble patience is for the sake of the experienced unity in the church. This is really the, the main goal. This, this first section here, the first thing that Paul thinks of is not just humility and, and gentleness and meekness in the abstract, but for something else. Because if you put together those two people, there's two people on either side. Somebody who is humble and, and patient, meeting somebody who is humble and patient, it will be, it will be the, the severing off of the root of discord. People who are humble and gentle and patient are really hard to offend. And when they are offended, they are quick to forgive. And that means that, that clashing and discord dies quickly and unity blossoms. That's where Paul's going here. He wants to say, verse 3, here's what, the, here's what the walk looks like. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every true Christian is united together in, in a oneness here. He's got, he's got a profound unity here. There's, there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. 
We've got the, the Trinity mentioned here in spirit and the, and the Lord Jesus in verse 5 and God the Father in verse 6 and there's one baptism and one faith which, which is all this, this one, this great unity and if we were to look back in the book we'd say, oh sure, of course. He's talking about eager to maintain the unity because there is already a unity that exists. It's been created by God. We don't make unity. We just keep it. We are a single people. And Paul's concern is that we recognize I and you in one family, that is the first biggest, first thing on mind right off the top of the deck. Here's what a worthy Christian walk looks like. It looks like a humble, unified body of Christ altogether. So the world out there looks at the church and says, there's the people who have been with their God. There's the people who are different and are changed. They can see that in us. A community that is humble and meek, united and loving. First and foremost, he's concerned about the atmosphere of the church. That we keep this unity and so I need to do justice to that and say, that's where Paul goes. And we should think about that as another aspect of why such unity, that why such humility is desired because it creates a unity in the church and a unity in family and a unity in relationships that display to the outside world God at work in us. So that's where Paul goes. That's his context. But that's not exactly why I'm here in these verses. I have another question. I see humility as desirable, and I want to know how I get it. I want to know how I grow in it. Where does it come from? That's the third point. Not Paul's main point in the passage, but if we look at this, it's actually kind of the logic that lies beneath the passage. So here's the third point, stated in question form. Where does humble patience come from, and how can we grow in it? So it's certainly a required part of life. It leads to unity that's sweet. How do I grow in it? Third point. We need to know this because Paul's laid this out before us. For our human relationships, it's important. It's also important for a relationship with God. Three times the Bible says, three times the Bible says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Three times. Old Testament quoted twice in the New Testament. God not just steps back from the proud, opposes, and gives grace to the humble. And if you think back into the Old Testament where that's quoted from, you, you move back there and you very quickly find a whole bunch of synonyms for, for humble and meek. You find words like lowly and contrite everywhere. 
Think of Isaiah 57, a passage that you might know where God says that he dwells with those who are lowly and contrite. He dwells in a high and lofty place and with those. God dwells with those who are lowly and contrite. Who are humble and not proud. So yes, I come to this and I say, I'm worried about just the struggle in my own heart and the difficulty that I have in the world and I'm worried about unity in family and unity in church yeah, I'm worried about carrying the burden of having to contend for myself. But I'm also, and I sure hope that you are too, I'm also worried about, I don't, want, I don't want distance to grow between me and God. I don't want there to be a gap there between me and him. I want intimate fellowship. I want closeness. I want blessing. And I certainly don't want God to draw up close so as to oppose me. Like he opposes the proud. Why does he oppose the proud? Because he will not tolerate any contenders for the throne. He opposes the proud. I don't want God to draw up near to me to oppose me. I want God to draw up near to me so as to give blessing to my humble and contrite and lowly heart. So God help me grow in humble and in meekness and lowliness and in contrition. I want the joy of your presence. I want the pleasure of your smile. And I don't want your opposition to my pride. So we need to clothe ourselves in humility. How do we do that? Maybe the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear lowly and contrite, contrite especially, you think, think of some context related to sin. A contrite person, lowly in spirit. A humble person, not proud, not boastful, is a person who sees his or her own sin and is broken over it. And this is true. This is, this is an important component to Humility. Do you see, not do you acknowledge, but do you see how prone we are, how prone you are, how prone I am to wander and break away from God and go our own way? Do you see that in your heart, in your life? Not being insensitive to it or dismissive to it. And not, not just throwing it away and saying like, oh, well, sure, of course, I mean, we're all sinners, right? No, see it. And be saddened by it. And remorseful over it. Sober-minded and realistic. The person who mourns over sin is lowly and contrite. So to keep sin in front of us and to see that's who I am. That's who I am. That was me. I did that. I did think that. That's true. Not throw it away, dismiss it. Hold it back. No, no, no. I can't hear it. I don't see it. No, 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 no. Bring it in front. Look at it. That's me. Not people. Steve. That is, in fact, an important piece of humility and contrition and lowliness. 
And maybe that's your first thought because of how those words sound, especially the word contrition. And that's true, and that's very common in the Bible. And I think probably that's the most common way we talk about being humbled. Being humbled by our sin. Made to eat humble pie. We use that word often to talk about being confronted with our sin or at least our failures. And it's easy then to think, to see, I am not all that. Yeah. Sin and failure, especially sin in the Bible context. Yes, an important piece of growing in humility. However, so... Watch what I'm doing here. I, I want to push that. I want to I honor that. I want to be clear about that. I want to say yes, that that's certainly in the Bible. And then I want to say, however, a gigantic however here, you have to hear this. However, if that's the only category that you have for humble and meek, then those words, humble and meek, become pretty negative. And they've got a shadow over them. Such that you hear passages and you hear them with this kind of this, this tilt in them. Like what, so what you're saying is that the first thing off Paul's mind here about what a, a worthy Christian walk, a suitable Christian walk is, is that I'm supposed to focus on my sin? Be humble meek? And that humble meek comes from focusing on sin. So what Paul's saying is that the first thing, the foremost thing I'm supposed to do is focus on my sin? Live constantly aware of how great of a sinner I am? Well, if that's true, I guess okay. But boy, that's going to be kind of a eh, sort of life. That's not true. It is, it is a peace. However, the big however I want to say is that that's not the main piece and that's not how this passage works. That's not the logic behind the passage that we're looking at. The Christian life is not driven by our focus on our sin, but rather the Christian life is driven by our focus on what God has done with our sin despite our sin, to overcome our sin and to deliver us from our sin. So this is critical and important because this then, however, makes this massive. What God has done to deal with my sin, if, if this is really small and really not that big of a deal, then what God has done to deal with that is really small and not that big of a deal. But if this, if I am a sinner through and through, then you are a glorious and gracious, forgiving God through and through. We start here, but we must not, must not, must not stay there. You've got to move on to God. That's how this passage works. We start with sin, for sure, despite the appalling nature of sin, and it is appalling. I'm a creature. You're a creature. Made by and owned by God who sustains every second of every moment, of every breath. He holds your atoms together or you'd cease to exist. He gives breath to your lungs or you'd die. And amazingly, appallingly, we say, no, thank you, I will go my own way. That is astonishing. 
Sin is astonishing. We reject the God who made us. We do not submit to him in thanksgiving and in obedience. But what is more astonishing and the very unique, very unique, very unique thing that a Christian has to feel humility in us. You see, a non-Christian also has, I'm a creature and a sinner. And we've got more. The very unique thing that we have is, despite all the appalling, astonishing nature of my sin, I'm an object of God's sovereign grace, which should not be but is. Amazing grace. That's what's here in this passage. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Worthy of the the destiny, the calling to which you've been called, to which you've been summoned. The The destiny, the calling. He summoned you, Christian, to a destiny. What's that? Chapters 1 to 3. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is in chapter 1. It's not he chose you to not sin, to be blameless like that. He chose you to stand blameless because of Christ. I'm a creature who sins, yeah, and one who was chosen by God to be blameless in his sight. He summoned you to that destiny of holiness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven and washed clean. And then he gave to you an inheritance of glory. This is the end of of chapter 1. He sealed you with his spirit, the foretaste, the down payment on an inheritance of glory, which means that for eternity, because of God's action and God's choice of you to put you in Christ, he's going to spend forever pouring out on you intimate, glorious, blessed fellowship, grace upon grace upon grace to you, despite the fact that you're a creature who sins. You're an object of grace. He made you and he remade you. He called you and then he effectively called you. He put you in Christ and made you new and determined in his own mind, I am going to love this one with a love that is wide and long and high and deep. This is chapter 3. Forever and ever. Therefore, walk in a way that matches that. See, what Paul does is he puts this call to humility and he puts this call to meekness on top of, he layers it on top of all of the glorious, gracious, saving work of God for you. And says the walk that follows out of that If you get that, it's humility. 
He roots it, in other words, not in your sin, but in the reality, this is true, and the comprehension of, oh, please comprehend this, the reality comprehended that God is gloriously gracious towards you now and in every moment forever. To grasp that and to see that, not just to know it, but to grasp it and to see it puts us in a place of saying, oh, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that you would love me in such a good and glorious way? That frees these words, humble and meek, it frees them from any kind of a shadow because it shines on them glorious light. It makes them sweet. It makes them words of of heart surrender to a God who is good and who has proven that to you. So we look through sin. We look look at sin, but we look right through it. And we look at the one who himself was humbled and meek, patient in love for you. So as to secure for you all the stuff that you yourself are tempted to grasp after trying to hold on to. You can let go of it. He's got it. You're good. There's a passage in the Old Testament, a story. 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to jot it down and look at it later. It's a passage we sometimes call the Davidic covenant, where God made promise, made a covenant promise to David. David had just come to be king, and he was settled, settled in a little bit, and he said, okay, now I want to build a house for God, a temple he meant. And God then said to him, no, 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 you don't do for me, I do for you. I'm going to build you a house. And he meant not a temple, but he meant a lineage, leading eventually to Jesus, the son of David. And he said to him, I'm going to make you and your line after you king for this people. And I'm going to make this people, my people, glorious and blessed And David heard that promise. And back then, the posture of prayer was to stand. That's the posture of respect. And David went into the tent of meeting with God, and he sat down. And he said, who am I that you would do that for me? And who is this people that you would do that for us? That you would pull them out of bondage and deliver them into such security and give them such a good king? Who am I? Why did David respond that way? Not because he had his sin laid in front of him, but because he knew who he was and had in front of him a great and glorious promise of a God who did what he shouldn't do, who gave to him Who am I? That's the point. We need humility. Humility is sweet. Humility is good. Humility is necessary for unity. Humility is necessary for for our, our union with God, our closeness and our intimacy with God. We need humility. How do we come to it? Not by just beating ourselves and humbling ourselves. I am a sinner. Indeed, indeed I am. 
and gloriously he is a forgiver and a blesser of sinners like me. So brothers and sisters, look through your sin, not around it, look through your sin at a Savior who is sweetly, omnipotently, astonishingly gracious to you. Who am I that he would be like that to me? Who are you that he would be like that to you? And the answer, of course, is nobody. It's actually about who you are. And that puts me humble in my place, sweetly in my place beneath him. Let me pray. Lord, would you take this word this morning from, uh, almost take the word therefore, the phrase calling to which you've been called, take those words and the logic in them Please build into us with them humble and meek hearts. Humble and meek hearts before you and before one another and before the world, in fact. Would you please cause us, your people, to marvel? Maybe, maybe plant in us that phrase, who, who am I? Cause us to marvel at you, to rest thankful in you. You are gracious, and so we are graced. Thank you. Pray in your name, you, the humble servant, Savior and King. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.